Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Hello and welcome back to week three of our recap and review of the new star series, Becoming Elizabeth. I'm your host, Christine Morgan, and basically, you all have been sending me your thoughts and hot takes all week, so I can't wait to talk about everything. A lot of running praise is coming through for the actors, who have all been honestly so impressive. Rosemary gave a shout out to Ramola, but is still on the fence about Jane Grey's representation, which I think is fair. I think Jane gets as much screen time as what Elizabeth would have witnessed, so maybe that's just not as much. On Twitter, follower Brooke made a really interesting historic parallel and thinks that Edward VI reminds her of her own topic of study, which includes Alexei, the son of the last Romanov Tsar. Brooke drew some parallels between his temper, which was mature in some ways, due to traumatic life experiences, but he is still mostly protected, if not coddled, by his family. And so I can absolutely see that. And I love how you tied in your own study to this period. And then Stephanie tweeted to me that she's really enjoying the buildup of Elizabeth's assertiveness. Yes, we love to see it. Clearly, um, in this third episode, Elizabeth is experimenting with finding her voice, uh, and she hits a few stumbling blocks and has some pretty big learning curves to work around. But the character development is resonating with so many of you. So thank you, thank you for coming to my thread and letting me know what you think. I think I agree with all of you. Now, this third installment of the series opens with a scene that I can only describe as, um, you know, when you're reading a sentence and it doesn't go where you think it's going. And then with each word, it just gets worse and worse. Um, that's how I felt watching this opening scene. Of course, it starts with Catherine Parr and she's peeing into her chamber pot in front of no less than four people. I know, I know. It would have been standard. It's just not for me, you guys. Um, and then a doctor comes through. He picks up the pot, pours it into a cup, adds wine, and then drinks it. You know, the fun of a series like this is that while I've read about pregnancy testing and methods, seeing it is entirely different. You know, it's a whole new experience of the source material. We're adding a different sensory element here. Um, it's entirely fun, but it is still a bit jarring. And then I did a little more research to see what other types of testing may have been done during this period. And here are a few of my favorites. Placing a needle into urine and waiting to see if it rusted. Checking the veins under a woman's tongue to see if they appeared more green than blue, 
And then the classic method of just looking at urine, what is the color? Is it clear or is it cloudy? I'm actually pretty impressed now that I think of it, that there are a fairly high number of tests that center around urine. So they were on to something there. They just weren't quite sure how to harness the science of it all, right? <laughs> um, here in the South, we would just say, bless. But ultimately, of course, women relied on natural cycles, feeling the baby move for the first time, also called the quickening, and then keeping an eye out for strange food cravings and things such as that. Now, one thing I'm still not quite clear about is Catherine's initial reaction to the news that she's pregnant. I think it makes more sense later. Um, but like the first thing she says, she predicts her own death. She predicts the death of her child. And obviously her doctor is like, why are you so scared? Um, I mean, while pregnancy was dangerous, death occurred in a pretty small percentage of women, although, you know, complications and recovery are a bit of a different story. A lot of it's just terrible. Um, but then she has this line, she says, I have so much to do. And there was something about the delivery of this line that kind of confused me. Is she saying she has a lot to do in preparation for the baby? Or is it disappointment that the pregnancy will make it hard for her to do anything? Obviously, she's very ambitious. She's trying to achieve things around reform. I think both interpretations make sense. Maybe they're not mutually exclusive. Maybe both are true here. Tell me what you think. We also find out a little bit more, this was fun, about the social... Um, reputation of Edward Seymour, the Duke of Somerset, and his wife. And Catherine actually makes it pretty clear in this scene that she despises Edward's wife. And it's with good reason. So um, Edward's wife's name is Anne. And after the Henry VIII's death, Anne Seymour tried to claim that she had more authority at court than Catherine Parr, who had married kind of beneath her station when she married Thomas Seymour. Um, and so she essentially tried to kick Catherine Parr out of spaces, or she became angry, even violent, if Catherine was ahead of her in processions and things like that. Ultimately, we know Catherine wins that battle, but it left a really sour relationship between the two now sisters-in-law, which is kind of a fun new layer Think about Catherine Parr having extended family now. Um, it should also be noted, just because I think it's interesting, that Anne and Edward Seymour had 10 children. There's so much more to this story, but I don't want to spoil anything. We'll have to see what comes up in the series. Um, but if you are a historian and you study Anne Seymour, Tell me if she's ever had a redemptive study. Everything I see about her paints her as, you know, rude, prideful, even violent. But we know the propaganda machine is strong in Tudor England. So I'm going to leave a little judgment at the door. I'm going to leave some room for character development there, okay? You don't have to, but I hope you do. We'll, see, we'll have to see what happens with Anne. 
Then we cut into a scene. Elizabeth is staring out a window, sort of listlessly. She's daydreaming. She's off in her brain. Uh, obviously, she's got some schoolwork in front of her. And who should appear and catch the princess alone for just enough time to reestablish less than chivalric intentions? Yeah, you guessed it. It's Thomas. He's always there. He is everywhere. Uh, and his dialogue is becoming more forceful. Things like calling her my Elizabeth or setting expectations that she's not allowed to play with others, essentially. So the scene devolves into the famous dress-cutting incident. And this incident is recorded as having happened with Catherine Parr playing along, and the account even suggests that Parr at one point held Elizabeth while Thomas cut her dress. Realistically, we don't know the context of that account or even how Elizabeth reacted to it, but this interpretation is so well done. I have to once again give showrunner uh, Anya Reese some praise because this scene flowed so well and it made sense of the account, framing it as uh, a game meant to lift Elizabeth's spirits. You know, they keep saying she has to be reborn for the summer, don't we all? Uh, and so that's how they sort of reconcile cutting her gloomy colored dress off. But obviously it's couched with our knowledge as viewers that it's more than a game for Thomas and Catherine Parr is oblivious, at least until the very end. She wants to announce her pregnancy and kind of add to the fun, add to the frivolity, add to this celebration. But Thomas is far too distracted by his game with Elizabeth. And I think this is the moment for Catherine that is the beginning of the end. Even Jane Grey has a really great quick expression as if she thinks this game is odd. And of course, Cat Ashley is just mortified. Poor Cat. Someone help Cat. Finally, we go back to Mary Tudor at Framlingham, and she is uh, in response to Elizabeth's letter, where Elizabeth claimed to side with Edward on the matter of religion. Mary is finding uh, her voice as well. And she demands the release of Bishop Stephen Gardner from the Tower of London as something of a peace offering. Uh, and Gardner is a Catholic and uh, very open with his grievances against reform. He was in the Tower for essentially refusing to acknowledge reform practices and accept the new religion. But Mary thinks he is a good balance for Edward's current Privy Council, and she's able to negotiate his uh, release and return to the Privy Council for now. It is her attempt at having someone with her similar opinions being in this lawmaking body. Here's obviously the title of this, this episode gives it away, but this episode is all about learning difficult lessons. And I think each of the three Tudor children learn important lessons in this episode. But Elizabeth, obviously, as our main character, learns the toughest ones. 
she gets called into a privy council meeting where we learn a little bit more about her letter to Mary uh, and that it actually came across to her sister as a threat or as a declaration of war. And it's what made her sister react in an effort to protect herself by requesting Gardner's release. So this is maybe one of the first instances of Elizabeth stumbling into matters of state, learning that she can't just write letters. She can't just trust how her words will be perceived. And she can't trust, perhaps even most importantly, that her brother or his counsel will necessarily support her, even if she believes herself aligned with them. So this is certainly the element of becoming Elizabeth that we were expecting to see. Then Thomas and Catherine themselves also come to the conclusion that Elizabeth does not at all understand the malicious workings of her brother's court. Um, Obviously, it's still partly her father's court, but you know, her brother's king. So some, some moving pieces have happened here. Um, and so over dinner, Catherine Parr launches into a fantastic monologue talking about why she was accused of heresy, of course, referring to the event where she had to beg Henry VIII uh, to have mercy on her. She had to do this whole song and dance about how he was smarter than her and she would defer to his religion and judgment You know, it was almost her last moment as a free woman. So thank goodness he believed her. And she's now explaining this as well as what happened to her friends and allies, such as uh, Anne Askew, one of the most famous uh, martyrs of this period. Um, Anne, of course, being brutally tortured and then burned as a heretic. So Catherine is saying all this to help Elizabeth understand what is really happening in England And just how bitter this religious divide is, no one is actually immune to this divide and its consequences. Again, we are given a great scene with Mary Tudor at her own dinner table, uh, having a dinner with Gardner and Knight Pedro. And Gardner seems not to have lost any zeal. In his imprisonment, he makes sure that Mary understands, and this is her lesson of the episode, she has a nation filled with Catholic support, more than she even knows. And this is true. After her reign, she was made out to be just evil, of course, but many accounts suggest that upon her accession to the throne, there were pockets of the country that rejoiced while other groups, of course, fled. So Gardner is making sure that Mary understands the full picture and the makeup of this nation, and he's letting her know that she's loved and supported. Back at Chelsea, Elizabeth, later in the evening, after essentially being told off by Catherine Parr, she seeks out Thomas, and she wants to determine if he's still angry at her for her letter and to ask if he thinks she's just a foolish child. Now, a lot of this, I think, is projection. That's how I'm seeing this. She sees herself as a foolish child and is therefore seeking emotional validation uh, from Thomas. And then he lists off people all around her 
who think they're in control of things that they're actually not. And I understand this as a double meaning referencing that uh, he perceives himself in control when it comes to Elizabeth, even though she thinks she's in control. And we're getting some indication from the dialogue that although Elizabeth feels like a foolish child, she's trying to distance herself from both of those terms. She doesn't want to be a child, and she believes Thomas's affection may partially be based on her maturity. So she's just really trying to decipher his thought pattern uh, and what he thinks about her. All right, I have to walk back something I said in the previous episode, uh, because I assumed, based on Edward's portrait imagery and costuming, that we'd progressed about three years. But here in episode three, it's clear we have not. Uh, Parr and Thomas are planning Elizabeth's 15th birthday, so we know that much time has not passed. On Twitter, you have to forgive me, I tried to find the person who mentioned that the visual may have just been an Easter egg for Tudor fans to notice, and not actually an indication of timeline progression. And I think this is right. Um, So I walk back my timeline idea, uh, and I apologize I couldn't find that tweet. Uh, I'd give listeners a shout out. Um, But you know who you are, and I think that you were right. Um, So now we're at the party. Uh, Elizabeth's getting ready for her birthday. Uh, The purpose of this party, of course, has been co-opted by Thomas and Catherine, who are still trying to place Jane Grey in Edward's sights. But before we get there, I just loved Elizabeth in this really striking green dress. And she chose to wear her mother's infamous Boleyn B. pearl necklace for her birthday celebration. Um, and oftentimes Anne, is, Anne Boleyn is associated with this color green. So Elizabeth's really channeling some nostalgia here. So maybe um, the necklace is a symbol that makes Elizabeth feel strong. Or maybe this is an important day and she wants to feel like her mother is with her in some small way. It's a nice inclusion. I think it's more than an Easter egg. I think it gives us some insight into how um, Elizabeth may have seen her mother. Um, And then a few of you asked if the necklace is, is known to have belonged to Elizabeth. The answer here is a solid maybe. She is wearing something similar in a portrait, but the initial is different. Um, And it's also possible that maybe some people in Anne's household or connected to her family may have kept and stored some pieces to later give to Elizabeth. But these are theories at this point, unconfirmed. Regardless, I like the nod from our costumer again, Bart Karras here. It is an Easter egg for us to enjoy. Unsurprisingly, uh, Catherine and Thomas throw another fabulous Tudor celebration. Edward sets the river on fire. There are fireworks. Everyone's playing cards. There's puppies running around. Um, And ultimately, again, the purpose, Jane is getting some quality time with Edward. And the card games and gambling is definitely more of what I typically picture for Tudor parties. 
and here, Jane is really, really feeding Edward's ego. She's playing with wagers. They're talking about their fathers and people at court. And then she tells Edward he's above everyone at court because he's actually better than a human because kings are chosen by God. And then Parr chimes in. She's egging Edward on. She's saying, you don't have to propose church reforms. You're the king. You just... You just make laws. Just tell people what you want. And we see Edward's wheels kind of spinning there. And then we get a really great tableau showing us the developing friendship of Robert Dudley and Elizabeth. He has gifted her an ankle dagger, which I love. If they weren't dangerous, I'd ask Rebecca if we could sell replicas in the merch store. Um, I think we'd all look really good with those. Anyway, in their conversation... They reference the dagger as a reminder of, obviously, the stag from the last episode. But then Elizabeth reveals she, just like her brother, has kind of an ego. Or at least her love language is like words of affirmation. Um, And she's really frustrated that no one is talking about how great she is at hunting. Nobody's talking about her achievement, and she wants attention for it. Probably another event that she sees as proof she isn't a child. And so it means a lot to her that people aren't talking about it. Uh, And then she turns around. (sighs) This is her arc, right? This is her lesson. 14, 15-year-olds. I mean, we've all gone through it. Okay, so then she turns around and out of jealousy... When she realizes she's second fiddle at her own party, she totally throws Jane Grey under the bus. That was, like, incredible. And I watched her, you know, I watched the acting there, and I thought, oh, my goodness, this feels like mean girl in high school, mean girl at this age. It really does. So while poor Jane scrambles to figure out what romantic song she's supposed to sing for Edward at this party... Thomas approaches Elizabeth and immediately calls her out. He points out, once again, there is a nuance to this party, and she's missed it. So he puts her in her place. And poor Jane Grey, this song is a huge misstep. Um, I mean, think about it. Like, well, we've all been to, like, the family gathering where someone gets asked to perform, right? So for me, like, that's my personal nightmare. But not only is Jane so nervous she can't even sing, but she's singing to a court of people who knew and loved the musicality of Henry VIII. The Tudor family are quite musically talented um, and famous for it. Um, And she's so terrible that her own father gets irritated. I mean, it's just, oh my goodness. It kind of reminds me of that scene in Pride and Prejudice with the sister who always goes to the balls and just plays piano and sings. Um, But everybody talks about how she's not good. So um, her father has to come over and ask her to stop playing. Total nightmare. I have secondhand embarrassment from this scene. I feel terribly for everyone involved. And then... um, Robert basically goes and tells Elizabeth that her trick was mean. It was petty and mean and that she abused her authority to humiliate Jane. And I was team Robert on this one. 
I love seeing her get told what's what. How else will she learn? Um, And then I was really surprised to see the next scene with Henry Gray where he's giving Jane lashes as punishment for singing so poorly. Um, And she's not making a sound, not anything. And that in and of itself is really tragic. It shows us she's endured this before. Crying only makes it worse. And so Elizabeth gets a really small redemptive arc here in defending Jane, ending the lashings. But frankly, the damage is done. She made a really bad decision, and she's she's learning that her decisions affect people beyond what she knows or what she's even considered. Um, so she offers Jane her dress and then turns in for the night. The party seems to continue even though Elizabeth has gone to bed. And so Thomas, I mean, predictably, comes into her room and he's drunk. And he's trying to kind of ease the tension between himself and Elizabeth, between a few interactions where he's kind of had to be the father figure as opposed to, like, the romantic interest, essentially. Um, And ultimately, he gets Elizabeth to admit she is in love with him. And he expertly dodges that question himself. And then, of course, because we need the drama, Catherine walks in. And she catches them in a clearly compromising position. And she's understandably upset. Um, And she runs out of the room. And Thomas decides to go after Catherine rather than stay with Elizabeth, which is just a devastating and heartbreaking blow for our princess because she's just told him she loves him. I saw a few of you have some interpretations of Thomas choosing to go after Parr, and uh, a couple of you actually thought it was because he's prioritizing a baby or a possible heir, but I I think he really does love Catherine. That doesn't mean he's a flawless person, obviously, but I think he has a conscience. Uh, I don't know. It could go either way in the context of this show. Time will tell. Um, I want to give a shout out to an actor who really had a shining moment this week, John Heffernan, who plays Somerset. My goodness, what a powerful performance in this Privy Council meeting where he has to remind Edward that he's not in charge. My goodness, this character is really unlikable. I do not like Somerset at all. But I have to give him his props because he seems like a stronger character than Thomas and Catherine. Even though they have similar ambitions, Somerset has chosen a more effective path to power so far. And he, of course, reveals to Edward the intentions for Jane Grey, to which Edward is completely oblivious, classic. Uh, I guess some things never change. Uh, And then uh, he also says, and he's right, that Edward's inclusion on the Privy Council is solely for him to learn how to rule, and that he is not yet prepared or mature enough to make laws and rules on his own. And everyone is stunned. Uh, And then we see a quick glimpse of Edward as the adrenaline of the outburst just moves through him. And he's shaking for a split second. I mean, it was a gorgeous acting choice. And so this was Edward's lesson. And then we come to my second favorite moment of the episode, 
right behind Robert telling Elizabeth that being mean is ugly, because it is. Um, But now Thomas and Catherine finally have a moment together, and he brings up the topic of his inappropriate uh, embrace with Elizabeth. And then he belittles Catherine's feelings by asking, are we going to have a performance over last night? First of all, the disrespect. I can't even believe it. If I heard, ooh, if I heard that in real life, you guys. Well, first of all, you'd all hear about it. We'll move on. So Catherine pauses for a moment. And I really thought, you know, she's going to be the proud dowager queen. She's going to keep her mouth closed. She's going to turn her eyes away, right? The standard practice of a, a queen at court. But instead, she reaches up, holds his face so tenderly as she just says, yes. You guys, I fell out. This was so good. She really said, you're going to get a performance. Gosh, this was such a great moment. So relatable. I I really loved it. Good writing, good acting, Um, fun physicality. I'm just really pleased at how they've written Catherine. She's so emotionally mature, and she keeps proving that in comparison to the other characters here. Uh, you know, they're really telling us or showing us, um, you know, she's she's older. She's wise. She's had all kinds of relationships. She's been in positions of power, and she knows how to handle herself. I think it's just really beautiful. We get really great character arcs. An equal development, I think, for each of the characters. And that's such a tough thing to do. And I think that it's been accomplished. And then finally, Catherine confronts Elizabeth. And she's trying to take the high road. You know, she knows her husband's impulsive and ambitious and charming. And she gives Elizabeth a chance to have control over this narrative of what happened with Thomas. Specifically, Catherine asks several times, what has he done? What has he done to you? And when Elizabeth lies, again, this character version of Elizabeth, when she lies, Parr accuses her of being like her mother, which frankly is a bit of a low blow considering Parr would have never been queen or had a chance to build a reformed England if Anne Boleyn hadn't achieved what she did. But that's neither here nor there. And Elizabeth, she sticks to her story. Nothing happened. I think Stars likes to get into these narratives where the line between what happened and didn't is fuzzy. I kind of remember thinking this in The Spanish Princess. You know, like, why would Catherine of Aragon allow herself to be watched after the death of Arthur with this presumption that she may be pregnant if she knew that she wasn't. Um, I'm not going to get back into that, but I really could. But I think we're being set up here to understand that Elizabeth is choosing to lie. Similarly to Catherine of Aragon, it's a lie made to save reputation or to save honor, both of which are incredibly motivating. But if they're going to set us up to know that Elizabeth is a liar, then I think we have to anticipate a little more creative license with Robert Dudley as well. 
Many, many historians maintain educated views that Elizabeth was a virgin queen. History on the whole remembers her that way as well. Um, So whatever we see in this series, as you know, it's fan fiction. Um, And then after this encounter, Elizabeth is expelled from Chelsea. Um, There were rumors that eventually came up that Elizabeth got pregnant with Thomas's child and gave birth in secret. Um, Tudor scandal at the highest tier. Um, But to me, this is a story as wild as the stories you might hear about Anne Boleyn. Too wild to be true, too convenient for people who hated her, just treasonous enough to eliminate her as a threat to the throne. I don't give any credence to these rumors. So Elizabeth is now on her way, presumably to Hatfield House, where she's more famously known to have resided. Um, And she leaves behind pregnant Catherine Parr, who, of course, has been her most formative mother figure. And at 15, that is just crushing. Uh, Elizabeth has had her own household before. She understands what's ahead of her, but being sent away by a person she loved had to be just tragic. And then, of course, you knew it was coming. We get a clipped montage revealing that in this created historic universe, Elizabeth and Thomas slept together. I think, again, this could maybe just be in Elizabeth's head, like maybe a montage of her daydreaming, because the whole show so far has been set up fairly chronologically. You know, Elizabeth um, is setting us up with a chronological mental narrative. She's not leaving things out. So maybe they've played us up to this line where the montage is just different enough from the rest of the story that it could be interpreted as a daydream rather than a memory. But I think that we all knew they were going to take us to this point uh, for better, for worse, regardless. Well, guys, that's it for me this week. Some tough lessons for our Tudor heirs, um, but consistent, equally driven character and plot development, which I love. And I think we have to be squarely into the 1550s now. There are only five more episodes in the season. Do you think we're going to get to Mary's reign? I'm less and less sure with each week. I would love to see it. Uh, As always, find me and my Sunday episode threads on Twitter. I include as many of you as possible, so join the fun if you haven't already. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you'll be back next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.